Welcome to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. In this podcast, there'll be insights around three key areas to mastering the game of life. Purpose, prosperity, philanthropy. Your host, Paul Lowe, the third sector mentor, is the founder of Hearts Global CIC, which along with many other of his charitable commitments, has been responsible for positively impacting thousands of people's lives, particularly young people from disadvantaged communities. Author of Mastering the Game of Life, From Pain to Purpose, and Speaking from Our Hearts books. Introducing your host, Paul Lowe. Welcome listeners to this podcast and I would like to talk to you under the banner of life's ever-changing game and to share my thoughts and opinions on that I am very honoured to be welcoming Mr Colin Slater MBE, a gentleman who I've worked with for some years and know Colin very well. We've done certain things together within the charitable stroke community sector uh, and Colin, as an 80-plus-something gentleman, has seen his fair share of changes in life, in broadcasting, in football. So, without further ado, Colin, a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you, Paul. And I'd like to start, if I may, by saying if you can give us some insights to life in general, uh, Colin, and how you've seen that change um, over your time on, on this earth. I'd like to be able to think that change means development and therefore moving forward. It doesn't always. Uh, Not all changes work for the better. They're made with the best of intentions, no doubt, or they just happen almost accidentally, but they're not all for the benefit of society because they don't move the world forward. But I've seen changes pretty well in every part of the world in which I've lived and moved and had my being, I can't think of an area where I have not seen change. Now, to be fair, and it doesn't contradict what I've just said, some of those changes have been for the better. And although I'm not a great technocrat, I recognise that there have been enormous changes as a result of our technical improvements over the ages. Where would we be today without such improvements? I've no expertise, and I'm going to give this as an example, I've no expertise in the world of medicine. But I know that once upon a time, because I was treated in this way, I had my gallbladder removed, and to my dying day I shall have the signs of a big slash that was made across my body. A friend of mine has just been in for the same gallbladder operation, same but different, in that he has been in for keyhole surgery. Now, that's a transformation for good, thanks to the skill, the initiative of no doubt a small group of people in the medical profession who saw this as the way forward. What it does is shorten the recovery time, hasten your ability to be back at work or whatever it is. And that is a real, real move forward. And I struggle to think of any area where there has been such change as in the world of medicine. When my late father went for his services medical in 1940, he was graded grade four and refused permission to serve in any one of 
what were then her His Majesty's services. And was told that was because he had very high blood pressure. There was no treatment in that time for high blood pressure. There was advice. The advice consisted of the very sparing about the use of salt uh, in either the cooking of or when you're eating your food. Be very careful with salt. Be very sparing about the number of times you eat red meat. Well, in the war, there wasn't much meat to eat anyhow, so that was uh, uh, a bit obvious. <laughs> but then he died suddenly when he was 46 and I was only 14. And he died suddenly on the first evening of the long school holiday from my grammar school in my native Bradford. When I see my doctor today, which I do reasonably frequently because I've got type 2 diabetes, and mentioned to him how pleased I am that my blood pressure is that of a young man, uh, and why I'm so pleased, he says, well, these days we have a pill for everything. <laughs> That is the most extraordinary progress. And it's fairly obvious from what I've said. It is over a lifetime. It hasn't taken centuries. It's over a lifetime that that change in the treatment of blood pressure, which is a potential killer, has happened. Excellent. Life's a very simple game. Would you agree with that statement, Colin? No, I don't think I would particularly. I think it's more complex than that. I'm not saying that it's frighteningly complex or anything like that, but I do believe it's fairly complex because I think life for me is based more than anything on relationships and relationships can be complex and often are and they don't always all run smoothly and uh, you don't always find yourself in life, in work, for example, having to deal, no option for you, you have to deal with everybody that's required of you to do so. And they're not all easy people to deal with. They're not all cooperative. They're not all even-tempered. They're not all on your side. But you have still got to deal with them for the benefit of your employers and for your own development as a character, as a person, uh, and I'm a great believer in character. I think character is the, the bedrock of uh, of all who we are and of our relationships. But you have to work at all those relationships. And I've had quite a few in my time when I could have thrown my arms in the air and said, oh, I can't, I can't cope with this. I can't do this. But you have to be able to suppress those feelings and make sure that in the end, you get along with people that sometimes you never thought you would. It needs patience. It needs diplomacy. But never give up. Of course, that's true of life generally. One of my great feelings is never, ever give up. Perseverance is a big word in what it entails, what it means, and what it can do for all of us in life. Persevere. Persevere to the end. Don't just persevere for five minutes. So on that word perseverance, is that something that you've had to apply, Colin, in your broadcasting journey, which I think it's fair to say is very significant time-wise? 
Well, I started um, regular broadcasting with the BBC when they introduced local radio. The BBC, first of all, introduced six what were called experimental BBC local radio stations, and Nottingham had one of those six. Leicester was the first on the scene towards the end of 1967, and Radio Nottingham went live in January 1968, and so it's now just celebrated its 50 years. It's a great achievement, and although many people have contributed to that achievement, uh, both in editorial positions, um, behind the scenes, names not really well known, as well as by some people in front of the microphone who developed a huge following, none more so than the late Dennis McCarthy in terms of Radio Nottingham. But it's been a great team effort over the years that has brought Radio Nottingham successfully, uh, with a few ups and downs, to the end of a 50-year life at the moment, celebrating that, as I say. If you were to say to me, single out one person, of all those that you have in mind when you've made those comments, single out one person that you think probably had more to do with the success than anybody. I know that my answer will disappoint some because they would think in one or two cases, oh, not me then. Uh, and uh, <laughs> other people who've worked with them would think, oh, he's got that wrong. Well, let me tell you that I think the most difficult thing in life is when you're starting something up for the first time. Other people can take it on and develop it and improve it, but starting something up, getting the show on the road, is for me the most difficult. And therefore the founder-manager of Radio Nottingham, Gerald Nethercott, an old BBC man, he was the founder-manager and he made sure that the show got on the road and stayed on the road and I think Gerald, um, well, I owe him a bit myself because he rang me up and said, I hear that you're leaving the Evening Post. Yes. And uh, what I'd like to do is ask you to come and see me with a view to you being uh, not a member of staff, but on a freelance basis, the uh, BBC correspondent for us with Notts County Football Club. And I said, well, I think I better, f first of all, establish that he's all right with my new masters whom I'm going to work for and I did and they said yes that's fine with us and uh, so I started in the first year of Radio Nottingham 1968 little dreaming that it would continue through to May 1971 when I retired in which time I covered over two and a half thousand Notts County games but had the additional privilege and pleasure of covering Nottingham Forest's European days, winning the European Cup as it then was twice, first in Munich and then in Madrid. But on both sides of the trend for me, it was a great privilege to be involved. And the privilege gets enhanced by the fact that you become friends with some of the people in clubs, including some of the players. You get to know some, not all, but you get to know some of the players extremely well. And, of course, I wasn't dealing with players at a time when they were earning 
astronomical and rather frightening sums of money. I could say other things about it, but I won't at this moment. And it was before those days when, and I say this out of respect for them, certainly not as criticism, they were decent, ordinary blokes, the sort of people that I like to deal with. Excellent. And that brings us on really, Colin. You've already alluded to being um, predominantly uh, the voice of Mr Knotts County and uh, flirted with the Forest European triumphs as well. So going into the world of football, and, and I'm very mindful that some of our listeners might not like football, but so I want to come at this from a more general context. And you've already used for me the right word at the top of this conversation, character. Some of the characters that you've met in, particularly in football, but in sport in general, because I know from my own exploits with you, you know, how well connected you, you've been in that respect. But some of the characters uh, you've met, Colin, and not necessarily from a name perspective, but what they actually stood for. Can you give us an insight into some of those those great people? It's interesting, isn't it, that the people of real character are often the people who reach the top of the tree. In terms of football, they are former players who go on to be outstandingly successful managers. Now, I never knew him personally. I never met him. Uh, but uh, one can quote the example of Bill Shankly, who is the man who created what Liverpool Football Club are today. They are Bill Shankly's club. Now, it's not quite the same in Nottingham because they haven't been allowed to be. Bill Shankly is still revered on Merseyside in a way which the reverence for Brian Clough and Jimmy Searle on either side of the Trent has faded to some extent, not totally, of course, and it won't for a long time to come, so long as people remember them. But to some extent, it's faded. It's not what it is for Shankly on Merseyside, I would say. Now, they were both characters. They don't make them like that anymore, I can imagine people saying. No, I, I can believe that. And I don't quite know what it is that galvanises such people, uh, because it may be different qualities in different uh, people, but, but they get galvanised wanting to reach the top wanting to be hugely successful and never, ever, ever being satisfied with second best. Now, otherwise, you don't do what Jimmy Siddle achieved for Notts County, and that's win three promotions for the same club, taking them from the depths of the fourth division into the first division long before it became the Premier League at that level. And Brian Clough, having seen his footballing career as a player wrecked uh, prematurely by a dreadful knee injury, the sort of injury for which then there didn't seem to be any cure, despite the skill of surgeons. They didn't have enough knowledge to be skillful enough, uh, and he had to end his career unfit to continue. But that seemed to galvanise him that when he became a manager, he would come out on top. And he came out on top chiefly at Nottingham Forest. He had one or two bumpy bits on the way, not least Leeds United for 44 days, in and out that quickly. But at Nottingham Forest, 
achieving promotion from the second division one season, the following season winning the first division championship, and by being in the first division, qualifying for Europe and twice winning the European Cup. Even as I say all those words, it's a staggering achievement, just as Jimmy's was. So if I was to try and pinpoint or pin you to the mask, Colin, in terms of one word, all these, you've, you've alluded to Shankly, you've alluded to Jimmy, Cyril, and of course Jack Wheeler is um, trusted sidekick as Peter Taylor was to Brian Clough. But if there was one common trait from your perception that these these three people, and there are others, of course, or is that too simplistic to try and try and use one word that runs through the core of all those three that you've mentioned? I won't be tempted to use one word, but I will repeat the phrase that I used a moment or two ago. Never to be satisfied with second best. Never, ever. And that means never resting on your laurels. Always looking to the next achievement. Always wanting to do better next season than this season that's just finishing. But that is really the key to that. And of course it applies across sport, whether the sport is a team game or or played on an individual basis. That's how you reach the top and it's how you stay at the top when you're never ever satisfied with second best. I saw it, I worked for some eight years at Trent Bridge, Nottinghamshire County Cricket Club, and I saw it there with uh, players who, with uh, either great skill or dogged determination, and there has to be a kind of doggedness about you, if you say, never ever second best for me, there's got to be something dogged about you that means it. And I saw players who went through and played for England one a local boy and we like local lads to do well don't we and he's now doing well as a first class cricket umpire and that's Tim Robinson the opening batsman a sort of doggedness about Tim Robinson really a good example of what I've just said is Tim and there's a, there's a saying, isn't there, that uh, particularly in football, Colin, that nice guys never win anything. But that nice guy external persona actually belies an under underlying, to use your word, doggedness. And they don't portray that actually to the public outwardly, but they certainly have that inside, don't they? I once had the privilege of meeting Sir Matt Busby, who was charming, absolutely charming, But I don't believe that the great man that he was achieved the success that he did with Manchester United uh, without all the qualities that I've been talking about, including doggedness and never being satisfied with second best. He only wanted the very best uh, for Manchester United and Old Trafford and the public who supported them. And uh, although, of course, Sir Alex Ferguson came along and was more successful, It goes back to what I said about Gerald Nethercott as the founder-manager of BBC Radio Nottingham getting the show on the road. After the war, Manchester United didn't even have a ground. Old Trafford had been bombed in the war and they played their matches at the old Manchester City ground at Main Road. But Matt Busby, never, ever, ever satisfied with second best throughout his long and very distinguished managerial career. 
Is it oversimplifying it, Colin, to say that, and I'm, I'm going to try and open this up away a little bit from football now, but is it oversimplifying it to say that what these people had is that absolute resolve and commitment towards the continuous improvement philosophy? Is that oversimplifying it? No, I don't think it is. I think it's spot on. And you've used words there. I've used the word dogged because it, to me it's, it's a very expressive word. And uh, what, what it says is also this, and what you've said also says this, that success in life, if it's not going to be a flash in the pan, a one-off, is not achieved by sitting back and resting on your laurels. It's achieved by very hard, dedicated work. People underrate how much work goes in not only in the world of sport, I'm thinking generally, great editors of newspapers haven't just achieved what they did achieve by resting on their laurels. They don't ever do that, this breed of person. They always take it on and take it further. And that's what makes them stand out as outstanding people. And at the risk of stating the obvious, that obviously extends into the world of business. I mean, you've certainly known your fair share of, uh, let's use the word, successful chairman. And uh, no doubt they would have had to have had that same doggedness that we refer to and that commitment to to continuous improvement. Would you like to share a little bit of an insight, Colin, around some of those characters and whether they did or didn't share that commonality? Well, there is something very interesting about people who joined boards of directors uh, of football clubs. I've known so many of them over the years and known them well. And I've known that they were undoubtedly successful in business, but they ran their businesses to certain principles and they were keen always to apply those principles year in, year out. That's what's got us where we are and we're going to stay with our principles. We're not going to be tempted away from them. I think that's a very fine trait. And uh, they would move into the world of football and forget that football clubs need to be run, all sports clubs need to be run, all businesses need to be run on the same basis, that um, we don't exceed in expenditure what we can afford to pay in any way. We don't exceed it. We don't put ourselves financially at the door of ruin. Uh, it's so easy to do it. Now, I first saw a chairman at Notts County, as it happens, who drew the line and never went over that line when it came to wages. Players used to tell the most hilarious stories about going in to see this particular chairman, telling him that what he was offering them for next season was by no means good enough and uh, being determined that they would talk him round, he sat there and said, those are the terms I'm offering you. There is no discussion. Are you going to sign or not? He could not be tempted above what he believed to be the right figure. And they used meek as lambs, usually meek as lambs. Where was all the bravado with which they'd gone into that room, <laughs> yeah, into yeah. his office? Yeah. And they signed, and Jack Dunnett, the man I'm talking about, a Labour MP in Nottingham at the time as well, 
Jack Dundee would say, thank you very much. Who's next? <laughs> Almost machine-like. Yes, yes. Um, never departing from his principles, but I've known others who could be easily, pretty easily tempted in all sorts of ways. And it's very difficult if you're listening to a manager who says, this is the player, this is the player. I know he's a bit expensive in the transfer market, uh, but this is the player who will transform our fortunes and get us where we want it to be. This man will do it for us. Well, we'd better buy him then, hadn't we? Though it's over the odds, it's more than we can afford. And he turns out to be something of a flop. And then realise, oh dear, hmm, we're worse off in two respects. First of all, we've spent the money and you can't spend it twice. Secondly, we aren't going to get where we were promised. Two blows in one. So there's not really um, a one-size-fits-all solution because you've already alluded to, obviously, Jack Donnett, who was very successful as, as a chair. And, and became president of the Football League as part of that success. And then there are also, as you've also alluded to, Colin, a chairman that might have been a, a little bit more liberal in their approach and, and back the manager with no guarantee of success. And I think, for me, that just epitomises how... How precarious life can be. There is not a blueprint for success. Yes, and I'm not just talking about chairman. I've isolated Jack Dunnett as yes. a good example. Yes. But I'm talking about directors who could easily be, forgive the phrase, but softened up hmm? Yes. into decisions that they came later on to regret but didn't seem to learn from. Yes. Okay, so... Moving on from the football theme to something that's very close to my heart, and it goes under the two words, under the banner of life's purpose. Now, I often use the analogy, Colin, that if we haven't got a purpose in life, we're a bit like a ship without a rudder. We're tossed about in life's oceans from one rock to a next. We've got no course. We just amble from one situation to another. What What's your views on the need to have a life's purpose? Well, I can't talk for other people, can I? I can only talk from myself and what I've learned in life and what I try to apply day by day. And it is to give of my best in all circumstances. And I pick those words carefully because it means give means giving of yourself. And unless you're prepared to give of yourself, then, of course, you will not be interested at all in working in the voluntary sector. And the voluntary sector helps to keep Britain going. Yeah. There are some aspects of our life which I think uh, people from another country would be astonished to know are run entirely on voluntary lines. I can give you two examples very quickly. One is the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, um, saving lives at sea, running entirely on voluntary subscriptions. It's extraordinary. They are as important to those struggling at sea in some calamity or other. They are every bit as important as our emergency services on land, like the ambulance service uh, that serves us in our cities and towns, or any other. 
So I can give you that one. And another one is the British Red Cross, who flourish despite the problem of having to raise every penny for themselves. But these things only happen and we're only able to achieve them because there are enough people in society, could do with more, but there are enough people in society who give of themselves. And I'm ever so grateful that in my earliest days in journalism, I worked initially for a genius of an editor and he gave of himself unsparingly in training young journalists like me and many others, all of us have cause to be grateful to him, no longer living, but we continue to be, have cause to be grateful to him. And he gave of himself in every respect, also in his voluntary work in the town that he lived in and worked in. And uh, he certainly did, so far as we were concerned, as trainee journalists. He spared nothing. And the reason I asked that question, Colin, one of the things that I've deduced, and, and you talk about your own opinion and your own journey, and I speak in that context about myself as well, but when I try and summarise my journey about how I've basically gone from pain in the past to where I am now, that's been around three pillars. I've made sense of it, and it's some would say it's oversimplifying it, and to a small degree I'd probably... I'd accept that uh, that counter, but it's around having a purpose, a light, a direction that we need to follow. Because if we don't stand for something, we'll fall for everything. And I go back to that example of the ship without a rudder. And, and as you know, from our work together, my early life was very turbulent. I was tossed in life's ocean from one debacle to another. So that's the first one, to have a purpose the second one, Colin, is, and I'd like your views on this word, prosperity. What does, what does prosperity mean to you? It's an interesting use of language, isn't it? But I think that the alternative to prosperity is usually thought of, and often is, another P, and it's poverty. And we know what poverty is. Poverty is when you're scraping money together, when you don't have enough money to do what really you need to be able to do. Now, I've not quite been in that situation because I was well supported from my home life. And at this time, of course, by my mother because my father died. But um, I started my working life. And there are people who, and whenever I mention this, look at me with blank amazement. They cannot believe it. Well, values have changed. The value of money has changed remarkably. And I started my working life for a weekly wage of £1.10. shillings. <laughs> wow. That was the wage when I started. So I know what it is not to have enough money to do some of the basic essentials of life. I know that experience. I remember it. And I never allow it to leave me at the back of my mind, perhaps, but I never allow it to leave me completely. Now, later on in life, the truth is that you get more money and you can do more things, both in terms of where you spend your holidays and what you do with your leisure time and so on and so on. But 
I never allow myself, as I say, to forget those early days. You do find yourself short of something else later in life. And I have great sympathy with those who get a bit, you'll understand the word, Paul, frazzled, because they, and I know it well for myself, haven't enough time, not enough time to do everything as well as we would like to do. And frankly, as people expect us to do, uh, there's nothing worse than setting your own standards and setting the bar very high when you know perfectly well they're not all going to be good days when you can achieve the bar that you've set. You can't always get there and certainly not get over it. Yeah, and, that, and that's absolutely a great point because, I mean, just to share with the listeners, I was actually late for this uh, coming to your to your house today for this uh, for this conversation. At one time, I would have given myself a really hard time over that, but I accept because I set an intention to be punctual, to be reliable, as you say, to be the very best I can be. But I also now embrace and accept that there are external factors that are out of my control. And in this case, a traffic jam on the A52. These things happen. But isn't it true that we historically and in the main, we take that personally. It's like, well, I'm going to be late and I, you know, this and that. And it's like, there's nothing you can do about it. And that brings in my, you know, for, for me, the three most important words in the world, let it go. Yes, I had an experience of that yesterday, not my own experience, uh, but uh, in one of the bodies, um, a charity of which I'm a trustee, we had a long meeting, a daytime meeting, and uh, I'm vice chairman of it. And at the very last minute, I got a, a note from the chairman saying that the uh, train he was on from London had uh, been held up in Kettering. He wasn't sure why and for how long he would be held up in Kettering, but uh, would I get the meeting underway? Well, it turned out that he didn't arrive until the lunch interval. Uh, the hold-up was so very severe. Now, just imagine that you've left London at nine o'clock and you get into the room in Nottingham where the meeting is at uh, around about 12.30. You're not feeling at your very best, are you? Uh, but he was as composed. It was almost unnerving to see how composed he was. And I thought, well done. You've not allowed it to get under your skin, because if you do, you won't share this afternoon's part of the agenda, because I then stepped back, of course, and he chaired the rest of the meeting after lunch. Um, I thought you wouldn't be able to chair the meeting in your usual style and with your usual efficiency and with your usual regard to the contribution of others around these tables if you had arrived in that frazzled state tearing your hair out so to speak yeah absolutely and for me and i speak from my own personal experience and that is a a, a harsh lesson that i've had to learn for my own and i will use the word sanity and you you can bear witness to that colin from uh, from days gone by but it is a question for me of detachment and accepting that you just have to let it go because it's done there's nothing you can do about it anyway so why fret over it? But it's a trait and a reaction. And I think that's the key word, reaction of human nature that as part of our conditioning, well, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And that's why now I set an intention to be there, to do that. And 
if external circumstances step in, that's fine. There's nothing I can do about it. I do agree with you. And I ask myself a question when faced with anything like it, and it is only about traffic jams. Can I do anything to change it? No, I can't. So just draw a deep breath. Yeah, absolutely. So just kind of moving on a little bit, Colin, from the, um, you know, around the prosperity, you've obviously given the context of the financial element predominantly. For me, it's also around things that probably many people, certainly from my conversations, don't really give enough credit to in terms of, you know, that word prosperity. And that's the, the mental side of our lives. You know, I think it's so easy to judge the bank balance, the money on the table, because that gives that initial, that's what prosperity is about. You know, it's around that wealth. Well, what about mental wealth? And that's particularly hot these days, you know, because things are you know becoming more, uh, we're being made more and more aware of the uh, issues around mental health, for example. So would you agree that, you know, it is a more holistic picture under that very broad word of prosperity? Yes, I do agree with that. But I also think that uh, society is um, in a trap uh, that has been made for it. And it is that so many things are judged by a narrow definition of prosperity. We talk about economic prosperity. By what ratio has the productivity improved? What's the value of the pound as against other currencies? Is that up or down? And so many of the yardsticks of prosperity are about the value of money. Then it's not regarded in any other way. Uh, but of course, you can't know what I would call internal prosperity for your own self. There is a self which is inside us, isn't there? Yes. And you can't know prosperity there unless you've got some standards and values uh, for yourself about a whole range of things and just be grateful. Sometimes we aren't grateful enough, but be grateful enough if you've never been there where you've had the kind of mental anguish, the mental disorder that some people suffer from and which ultimately leads some, fortunately a minority, but there's still very sad cases, of course they are, to take their own lives. Yes, if we have our own sense of worth about ourselves to keep on that straight and narrow road, the better we are. Absolutely. And I'd just like to finish off the prosperity theme. And I'd like to quote this. And I think it's so holistic. I really love this definition. It's from Wikipedia. And I quote verbatim. Prosperity is the state of flourishing, thriving, good fortune or successful social status. Prosperity often encompasses wealth, but also includes other factors which can be independent of wealth to varying degrees, such as happiness and health. For me, Colin, that perfectly epitomises prosperity. Yes, and I think you've used a word right at the end there from that quote, which is fundamental, and it's health, Yeah, good health. If we enjoy good health, and I have done for most of my life, obviously you have times when you're unwell and, uh, and, and so on, but when you're unwell, you cannot function as efficiently. You cannot do things as well. And we shouldn't expect people 
who are in pain because of some muscular problem, perhaps. That sounds a bit, oh, well, that's every day, isn't it? doesn't mean that it's not serious. No. People who need painkillers for their rheumatism or their arthritis, they would love to be free of that pain, but they are in pain. They deserve all our sympathy. And if you're in pain from anything, and I've had a few examples in my life myself, if you're in pain, you cannot be at ease with yourself. You cannot do anything as well as you would hope to do it. And you know what it is, therefore, to be in the position that others are in. I sat where they sat, and I knew, somebody once said, if you've sat where other people sit, in terms of being in pain, being less comfortable living your life, then you get to understand how they feel. So a bit of suffering, I don't want to exaggerate it, I said a bit, a bit of suffering for any of us, like I've had this year with a fall and breaking my hip, does just sharpen you up in recognising that some people have that kind of setback and difficulty in all of their life and every one of their days. And as a result of my own experience earlier this year, I have considerably more active sympathy for them than once perhaps I did. Question of empathy, really. Yes, it is. Yes. Okay, so we've spoke um, around the first pillar, purpose. We've spoke around the, the second pillar, prosperity. Coming on to my third pillar, Colin, and you've actually quite, you've touched it quite a bit already, which is philanthropy. And yet again, I'll set the scene, if I may, by quoting Wikipedia. I, I love this quote again. And they say, it comes from the Greek word meaning love of humanity. It's an effort or inclination to increase the well-being of humankind as by charitable aid or donations. Is that for you, Colin, a, a good overview of what philanthropy means? Yes, it is, because I've quoted how part of this country is sustained and maintained uh, by voluntary organisations without which we would be infinitely the poorer. What would we do if we couldn't maintain on a voluntary basis the Royal National Lifeboat Institution or the British Red Cross? And that's only, that's only two out of scores of voluntary organisations in this country, all of which have charitable status, or if they don't, they should have. There are numerous charities uh, across this country. And you've got, in my opinion, to be able and willing, willing to do what you can to make sure that the work of those that you identify with continue and I'll pick up a word you use there, flourish. We want to see all these important voluntary organisations flourish. And if they're going to flourish, it isn't going to be because of government. And it usually isn't going to be because some largesse has dropped out of the sky by somebody leaving um, them a million pounds in their will. The million pounds is going to be made up of much smaller donations, regularly made not chancy, so that they don't know, well, we got that we got that £25 from them last year. We haven't seen anything this year. 
if you really intend to support one of these charities, and there are so many to choose from, if you intend to support one, you should make sure that by a direct debit or a note in your diary, what you gave last year, if your circumstances still allow it, you give this year and next year and the year after, because that is how all these charities will continue, hopefully, hopefully, to flourish. We need them to do so. What I'd like to do now, Colin, um, by way of, of starting to, to draw things to a summary, is, is take, take you back, if I may, to when we first met over 20 years ago and the glue that brought us together. Now, this was a very, and I'll use other people's words, a very unusual union, because on the surface of it, you've got a, a young fella, i.e. me, that was heavily embroiled uh, in drinking, his drinking addiction. I was erratic, to say the least. On the other side of the coin, you've got a gentleman of, you know, of distinguished achievement, an MBE, and the two got together with a common purpose of service. Philanthropy, if we want to stretch it to that, but serving, to use your terminology from earlier on, Colin, giving. And isn't it true to say, and this is certainly not a, a bouquet throwing exercise to me or you, because I know we did so selflessly, but I think we made an impact, didn't we, between us on that journey? We started with an organisation called Football Acts and we broadened that out fairly quickly to become Sport Acts. And it was a registered charity with the particular aim of supporting those in society who were living where you'd lived in an underprivileged state. And although I hadn't known such deprivation myself, uh, I had known what it was to start working for very little money and not being able to do things. As a result, you do need money to do things. Money helps the world to go round after all. But I liked the word that you use there, and it's the word of service. I am a member of a Rotary Club. I'm an honorary member which is, uh, I'm very grateful for, for their decision to make me an honorary member. And service above self is the rotary motto. And it's a principle that I think is hugely important. Service above self. Service to others above self. And yes, if you mean it, it will sometimes cause inconvenience. It will sometimes mean that you're going to be doing something when you'd rather be doing something else. Not always, but sometimes it will mean inconvenience. It will mean that you can't always oblige people who expect you to be somewhere else and do something else because you owe an allegiance to that organisation. Service to others. Service to society. Above self. Not a bad uh, maxim in life in my book. No, because we all need something to believe in other than ourselves. Because if we if we haven't got that, we're going to live a life of just navel-gazing. That is the reality. And I testify to that on a personal level. Okay, so I alluded to Colin, the summary element of this, uh, what I believe has been a, an enthralling conversation. 
If I was to say to you now, for the benefit of the listeners, um, based on your your time on this earth, some real sort of, you know, one-liners, some gems, and I know you've already given us many, but just by way of summing up, maybe three or four little pearls of wisdom about going back in the context, life's an ever-changing game. What would your words of wisdom be to the uh, to the listeners? I would say to young people, when you're choosing your first job or an early job in your career, never think that money is the all-important factor that would take you to job A rather than job B. It isn't. What will really matter to your long-term success in life is whether or not when you join a firm, a company, whatever it is, whenever you join, there is somebody there who has the skill and the willingness to teach you the rudiments of the job. That's something that money cannot buy. So I would say that to young people. Uh, To those uh, who are getting on in terms of years a bit, I would say every now and again, have a little review of where you've come from and where you are and where you want to be. And are you content that you are on the right path? A little bit of an audit of one's own life is no bad thing. And I think you know that, Paul, because I think you've done it. Absolutely. And the third thing I would say is that when you get older, and we're all living longer, when you get older, don't think, don't believe for a moment that that means that you are, have to be on the scrap heap. No, you should still be for all your experience and knowledge greatly valued by the rest of society in a very positive way. And on that very uh, powerful conclusion, I'd like to thank Mr. Colin Slater, MBE, for his uh, for his words of wisdom. I hope you, the listeners, have got some, uh, some value from this conversation. I, I know I, I have personally. And all that remains now is for me to, to thank you, Colin, for your, uh, for your input. I've enjoyed it. And obviously to you, the listeners, as ever, for tuning in. And so until the next next time, take care and thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. Drop a line to paul at paullowhearts.com with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at paullowhearts.com or any of his social media feeds under the same name. Remember, mastering life starts by embracing our hearts.